The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm holding in, uh, holding out. I guess would be a better word. <laughs> yes. uh, are you en- Are you enjoying Are you enjoying your papal visit? Oh, we're just uh, all full of enthusiasm over here, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but he answered an objection on the on the plane from Santiago in Cuba to Washington, he said, I am not an anti-Pope or an anti-Christ. <laughs> okay. There was something in a, in a Newsweek article that said, is the Pope Catholic? So he was sort of answering that. He says, I can recite the creed if you want. You know, but it was kind of interesting that that, that came up. You know, that, uh, so, uh, uh, but, you know, he's, no, we're not really paying much attention to him. I think the fact that he feels to actually state that is is kind of indication of problem enough. And funnily enough, I got an email from Father Chicada this afternoon, and he said in typical Father Chicada fashion, no doubt Papa Gaga can recite the creed, but he might have trouble explaining it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, that's uh, definitely... He doesn't have to sign his name to any of those things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so carrying on this is the second of two episodes discussing Verum Novarum an encyclical written by Pope Leo XIII at the end of the 19th century the encyclical focused on the Catholic use of capital and labour I'll briefly go over what we discussed last show because it really does fall in the shadow of, of the previous show and everything discussed there so we talked about the historical context which was the collapse of workers' protection, the destruction of guilds, and the increasing greed of unchecked competition. Uh, we talked about the person of Pope Leo XIII himself, the socialist solution, particularly in Europe and particularly in England at the time, the fact that rationality demands private property, it's part of nature, the duties and the purpose of the church and state with regards to the use of capital and labour, the inequality of it and the lot of man, the duties of each class, the necessity for justice. And this tour de force of moral theology continues. For those reading through this encyclical at home, we start at paragraph 34, which is essentially Pope Leo XIII talking about how the different classes contribute to society. He stresses very clearly straight away that men are not equal. Now, my Lord, any comments you would like to make on this particular paragraph? Uh, yes, well, he um, said in another encyclical earlier in his, in his pontificate that there is a natural inequality among men. He says the equality of men consists in this, that they all have the same nature and that they are all called by God to become children of God. He said in that they have equality, but that in their various talents and intelligence and, and various other ways, they are not equal. And so that is something ordained by God, so that there be a proper distribution of various works in society and that some people can contribute this, some people can contribute that. So he's saying no matter what changes may occur in forms of government, there will ever be differences and inequalities of condition in the state. 
So you never get rid of an aristocracy. And an aristocracy is actually a very good thing, uh, just as the low class is a very good thing. There, there has to be a class of people that is working uh, low jobs. There has to be a class of people that is working high jobs, uh, uh, jobs that require a great deal of intelligence, direction, uh, uh, personal abilities and management abilities. So in this country, as you probably know, uh, the Constitution forbids titles, so there's no aristocracy in this country, but uh, there, is a, there is an aristocracy. And a typical example of an aristocrat in the United States would be Donald Trump, uh, who, is, he says, is worth $10 billion and who has built up this tremendous empire. Really, in a certain sense, from not nothing, but a relatively low state. Uh, another one would be the other candidate, Ben Carson, who came up from absolutely nothing. Uh, his mother couldn't read or write. And now he's the brain surgeon in Johns Hopkins University, or retired from that. But he became part of the aristocracy because of his talents. And so the point is that every society has a certain echelon of people who are more talented and who who are more eminent. And also, every healthy society should have a low class because there, there are a lot of jobs that pertain to the low class, and somebody must do them. If those are not done, uh, then society suffers a great deal. There should be also a middle class. That's all part of the health of any society. So that, that's what he uh, is saying, essentially, in this paragraph 34. And he goes on to say that the reason for the government, its whole purpose of existence, is for the safety of the Commonwealth. That's that's its primary function. This is in paragraph 35. Is there anything you particularly like to say about that? Uh, yes, that the, the government is not some self-serving monster, as socialism would make it, but it exists primarily for the the good of its members, that it is supposed to aid people in the, first of all, their religion, uh, secondly, in the pursuit of the ordinary goods of life, and protect them and aid in producing a good economy and making an atmosphere for a good economy. Uh, those are all of the purposes of the state. The, the socialistic state that we have now is something that is self-serving and uh, encourages uh, greed among those who achieve government, uh, places in the government, and uh, has absolutely no uh, reins upon it with regard to what it thinks it can do and how it can intrude into the family. And most of what he's saying here is common sense. Uh, unfortunately, we do not live in a world of common sense. We live in a world of common insanity. And to hear these things uh, is, is really quite unusual. Um, <laughs> so uh, it is. It's, but most of what he says in this in this encyclical can be reduced to common sense. In paragraph 36, he's talking about good order and the dangers to it. He lists six key dangers. This is when the government may step in to assist in sorting problems out. He mentions if a strike of workers or concerted interruption of work, there should be imminent danger of disturbance to the public peace. Or if circumstances were such that among the working class, the ties of family life were relaxed. Or the third, if religion were found to suffer through the workers not having time and opportunity afforded them to practice its duties. Or if workshops and factories, there was a danger to morals through the mixing of the sexes or from harmful occasion of evil. Now, that one really struck out at me because we regard a mixed workplace now as just normal. If oh, yes. Employ <coughs> if employers laid burdens upon their workmen, which were unjust or degraded them, or if health were endangered by excessive labor or by work unsuited to sex or age. Now... Obviously, particularly, I said that number four surprised me a lot because we're used to just working in a in a mixed workplace now. It, it's just part of modern life. We don't even think about it. Yes, uh, that was at the time uh, when he wrote this relatively uncommon. Uh, women worked in the home. It was a an effect of the Industrial Revolution that occasionally they did come out. Uh, but many times they worked among themselves. For example, in in um, 
garment factories. It was all women. Uh, mixing the sexes in the workplace is something that came perhaps uh, commonly after World War One, at least in the United States, probably in Europe as well. Um, but uh, even then, it was there were some restrictions. Uh, I mentioned in another show that my mother told me that when she worked in New York as a secretary when she was in her early twenties, that uh, they had to hide their engagement rings because if the management found out that they were engaged to be married, they would be fired for the reason that married women shouldn't work. They should be in the home. And that was New York, which is a pretty liberal place in the 1930s. So uh, it's, you know, things have obviously changed. Uh, but uh, at the time, <clears throat> the uh, you would not see too much mixture of sexes in the workplace. As a matter of fact, secretaries in most cases were men. Uh, yeah. We think of a secretary now as always a woman, but they were in the 1800s, they were mostly men. So he is obviously warning against something that is very bad in itself, and that is the mixing of sexes. We see, you know, now that they mix the sexes in the army and all, uh, at least in this country, I don't know if England has it, but you know, there's a big rise in in uh, sexual abuse and and cases of rape and all. What do you expect when you put men and women together in situations like that, working together so tightly? Uh, of course, there's going to be that stuff going on. Who, who's surprised by that? And they have them in the military academies and all of that. I mean, it just makes no sense at all. Again, uh, what he is saying is common sense. We live in a world that is is ruled by by complete uh, insanity. Uh, you know, from day to day, it gets worse and worse. <laughs> and uh, so it, it, it does. It's just you know, you can't believe what's uh, going. You know, you just hear things that that just make your mouth drop. Uh, it seems like every day there's something else that's going to happen. And yes, what he's calling for here is that intervention of the state where there are extreme cases. Uh, the implication is that the state should stay out of it, except for these cases. You know, these are the uh, extreme cases in which the state should uh, take a, a role in protecting one or the other interest. But you know, he, he's very much in favor of, the, of a limited role of the state with regard to economy and and uh, the workplace yeah the the phrase hard cases make bad laws springs to mind but um mm -hmm. he moves on um <laughs> actually we're on briefly we're on the subject um i have i've had friends and family in the royal navy and they've recently put uh women on submarines with men that this has been yes. restri restricted up until this point um, women are allowed in all branches of the military. They're not allowed in frontline combat roles in the army, um, but they're allowed to be in every other branch. They've now put them on submarines with men, and naturally, the wives of the other sailors who who are at sea with these women in the submarine are upset. They're very upset. They don't want their husbands going away to. Yeah, it's completely natural, but the Navy and the government doesn't have any kind of consideration for how they might think. It's simply that this is dogma, it must be done, this is fair and just and right and liberal and equal mm -hmm. and all the all the other names that come out, and that's exactly what's happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. You, so we, we're, we're about to have women in combat. They, so we just had some graduates from the uh, like Navy SEALs or one of those kind of things. So we'll have women in combat. It's just crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. It is. It is. And then Obama appointed a homosexual as the uh, secretary of the army. So, so we'll see what he shows up in when he does like the review of the troops. <laughs> you get. <scared. laughs> oh dear. Well, the, the mind boggles. I just. I, I, life is its own parody at the moment. <laughs> if we move on to. Uh, Paragraph 37 and 38, probably over 13, explicitly, again, and we mentioned this in the last episode, he explicitly uh, talks about the protection of the poor and the fact that uh, wage earners in that level, since they are needy, they need to be especially careful. And in 38, he goes on to talk about 
for state protection from theft, and it's simply effectively re- reinforcing the seventh and tenth commandments and uh, and against against greed and stealing. Is there anything you particularly like to say about about these two paragraphs? Uh, yes, he he points out that the rich can uh, protect themselves from various problems and and uh, abuses and whatnot, but that the poor have to rely upon the state to protect them. So the state should take a, a special role in making sure that the poor are not in any way exploited improperly by employers. Now, again, this is in the context of 19th century employment, which was notorious for mistreatment of employees, long hours, uh, terrible conditions. There was a a factory in New York that burned down in the latter part of the 19th century where uh, so many young ladies who were working on garments were killed because there were no exits. Uh, There was a fire that broke broke out and and, uh, there were no exits. They were jumping off the the building, jumping to their deaths. Uh, because uh, for fear of being burned up in the building. Uh, That that was just so typical in the 19th century. We're seeing it in places like uh, Thailand and and, uh, Burma and and other other places like that where these buildings collapse and, you know, where there's deplorable conditions. Nothing has changed, whereas those things would be outlawed in, in this country and I'm sure in Europe. The entrepreneurs have gone over and uh, found some slave labor, essentially, I mean, virtual slave labor uh, in those countries, and also uh, conditions in which they are not required to protect the the people who are working. And uh, so they, you know, they pay them virtually nothing, and then they come over here and into Europe and sell them for uh, a, a, an extraordinary markup, uh, an incredible markup. Uh, they're getting American and European prices for something that is, is worth a, a tiny fraction of, uh, of what they pay for it. So, I mean, nothing's changed in that sense. And, and this all it happens uh, under the approval of American and European governments you know, that, that uh, instead of saying we will not accept into our borders something that is produced either by people who are making terrible wages or who are working in environments that are, are not conducive to their health or uh, whatever other abuse they might be subjected to, that that's, that the law should exist and there, there should be a condemnation of that, but there isn't. And that's what he's saying here is that the state should protect workers from uh, the abuse of employers, uh, which is, of course, true. The Catholic Church, while it detests socialism, nonetheless sees a need to curb capitalism. It's, it's, not, you know, it's not like an American Western, where somebody wears the white hat and somebody wears the black hat. So if we put the black hat on the socialists, you know, then the conclusion is, well, the capitalists must be wearing the white hat and they are the good guys, as we say over here, and they'll win at the end. That's not the case. Pius XI actually said not everything that the socialists say is wrong. You know, they make certain points about wages and protection of the workers that 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 are true. And so the church, I wouldn't say it bowls down the middle, but it certainly takes into consideration the condition of, of the working class but not in a socialist sense. It condemns socialism. Socialism is to solve the problem in an entirely humanistic and naturalistic way, and it is to create uh, class hatred and uh, turmoil and and tumult, as we saw in Soviet Russia and and all of those other places that accepted socialism. And uh, it's, you know, what we have today... uh, to a greater or lesser extent, in all Western countries, uh, practically all the countries of the world, uh, some form of socialism. And, and the church has always condemned socialism. Uh, now, this you know this encyclical is important too because you would, uh, for the reason for this reason, that you would think from hearing Bergoglio that the church never had any care at all of the poor, that he is the first one to come along, uh, probably since Saint Peter. Uh, to say that the church should care for the poor. But here we have Leo XIII, who is an aristocrat, issuing this encyclical, 
scolding a great deal the capitalists of their time, of his time, and the entrepreneurs uh, who have little or no care for their workers, uh, really giving it to them and telling them their obligations. So it, it just debunks this idea that the Catholic Church has no care of the poor. Um, then in 38, he reiterates that there is the duty of safeguarding private property by legal enactment and protection, uh, very emphatic on private property. Then he condemns socialists. He doesn't mention them by name, but he says, but there are not a few who are imbued with evil principles and eager for revolutionary change. These are the communists, socialists in Europe, and there are a lot at this point, uh, whose main purpose is to stir up disorder and incite their fellows to acts of violence. That's what happened. It's probably the main reason why Germany collapsed in 1918 was because of the the uh, socialists who were eating away inside Germany and, and infecting the army uh, with a spirit of revolution. Um, uh, and uh, they, they, they did terrible damage to Europe and particularly after World War I. Uh, but already they are very, very, uh, in Europe particularly, and the United States too, they are very, very active. He says the authority of the law should intervene to put restraint on, upon such firebrands, to save the working classes from being led astray by their maneuvers and to protect lawful owners from spoliation. Uh, that's going to be the big problem for all of the industrialized countries is providing some sort of solution to the problem that the Industrial Revolution caused, and that is that big gap between super-rich entrepreneurs, greedy entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs who are insensitive to the condition of workers, and on the other hand, the greed of workers and their hatred for the entrepreneurs, uh, the social uh, wars and social struggle that uh, communism and socialism preach. That's the big problem of the 19th century. He, in this encyclical, is trying to solve it. Unfortunately, most of the things that he has said here will, will fall on deaf ears eventually, although the Catholic Church did a lot to to try to uh, promote this, uh, Pius XI with Quadragesimo Anno will do the same. He will try to, uh, um, it's an encyclical, uh, to try to instill the same principles in the 1930s. But pretty much this very, very balanced economic order that the Pope is preaching here uh, will fall on death and, and the world will go socialist, essentially. Mm-hmm. In 39, he carries on, he talks about the obligation of the government to intervene and remove the causes of strikes in in good time so that the, mm-hmm. so the necessary consequences are not felt. And living, living near London and having to commute into London occasionally, London Underground staff... <laughs> I hate. I hate to. You know, if any of them are listening, if any of them are listeners, I'm very sorry to pick on you. But they they frequently go, they frequently go on strike, and London literally grinds to a halt. There are ten there are ten million people living in the Greater London area, and working in the in the transport industry, I know that there are roughly ten million journeys a day made on the transport system within London. It's one of the the busiest and most heavily served by public transport cities in the world. The, the public transport network is vital because, as you know yourself, the streets are quite narrow, they're winding. Uh, it's it's an old city, so peop- it's easy to get around on public transport. And when they go on strike, it, the whole city grounds to halt, and people, people hate it. it. It causes untold misery to millions of people. And the Pope is simply saying... Logically, again, common sense. People should step in and remove these things, remove these problems beforehand. And it doesn't help the people who work for the for London Underground because cheap train drivers get paid almost double what a newly qualified doctor gets paid, and yet still go on strike. But mm-hmm. the, the 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 Pope is simply saying this sort of thing should not. It should you should never really get to a strike. People should intervene and should 
solve these problems early. Yes. Uh, however, that's an ideal world. I mean, he's uh, uh, he's looking or, or he's hoping for two sides that are acting very reasonably. And the problem that we have today is that I think the the side of socialism has prevailed, and that the that there is too much conceded to the lower classes. As you say, the you know, salaries of people who are doing relatively low jobs is so high or so high that it becomes absurd. Uh, and then, and then uh, it drives the entrepreneur to places like China and similar places in order to make some money because they can't make some money. And the, the socialist sees an entitlement that, that I am entitled to a raise necessarily. And I'm entitled to more and more and more, more benefits, uh, uh, and they are represented by labor unions who, whose sole purpose for existence is to get them more. And otherwise they go out of the existence, they become useless. So, you know, it, it is, uh, now in this country, there is actually a law against civil servants striking. It is often not uh, enforced, but many times it is, you'll get a court order that says they cannot strike. For the very reason that you said, uh, there was a case like that when Reagan came into power, the uh, air traffic controllers, who are public servants, went on strike, and you're probably too young to remember, but he fired them all. He got (laughs) rid of them all in one day. He gave them like a day to come back. Otherwise, you're all fired. He got rid of them all. Most of them left. And he got the military uh, traffic controllers in to to keep the the planes going, and uh, so you know that that's uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in this country there is such a law that they cannot, and and I that's where I think they would agree with Leo the Thirteenth. I mean, that the state really should protect the common good from that, because the other side of the coin is that public servants. I don't know about England, but public servants in this country cannot lose their jobs. They have great employment uh, stability. And, you know, they would have to practically put a pie in the president's face uh, in order to lose their job. I mean, it's that, that, that much. It's that bad. So they have this great stability. They have a job for the rest of their lives. They have, they have uh, pensions, everything taken care of. That's the other side of the coin. And, and so the government says to them, look, you know, you've got all the stability and, and uh, you should give up the right to, to strike because your, your job is, is essential to the state, which is a just way of dealing it, I think. But the, the general interests of the public are, are, are very strong and they override the, the, the natural greed of, of workers uh, and uh, but again, you, you have to deal with reasonable people on both sides of that table. If one or the other is unreasonable, it just inspires lack of reason in the opponent. And then you get what we have today. So, uh, in the paragraph 40, he goes on to say that the working man, too, has interests which, uh, in which he should be protected by the state. And first of all, there, there are the interests of his soul. Now, that's Another ideal, I'm sure that fell on deaf ears in most of the uh, Western world uh, that, that the state should worry about the souls. But of course, it, what he's saying is absolutely true. I wish we had a Catholic country in which the government cared about uh, whether you, you're saving your soul or not, and of course, making it easy for you to do so. And then he talks about not working on Sunday and, and having the ability to go to mass, that's in 41, just making life conducive toward uh, leading a, a holy life, holy days of obligation. Those things should be should be off. The church reduced very much the holy days of obligation to only, actually four, most countries have six, but technically by law only four. Uh, it used to be before Urban VIII, uh, there were, you know, at least four a month anyway, <laughs> perhaps more. But uh, because life became less agrarian when, the, when it was possible to take some days off like that, uh, it became necessary to reduce those. But uh, that's what uh, he's calling for here. Again, it's an ideal world that he's looking at. I don't think it ever existed. 
Uh, it used to be that there was no work or labor on Sundays, at least in the United States. I don't know about Europe, but I think it was true in Europe, too. I remember in Switzerland, nothing, when I was there in the 1970s, anyway, nothing was stirring on Sunday. I don't know about England, uh, if that was true, say, you know, before the Vatican yeah. Council, like in the 1950s. Uh, it was pretty much a dead day from the, you know, you could hear a pin drop almost. But then uh, again, with the 1960s, it all started to fall apart. And uh, places were open on Sundays, exceptionally. And now it's, everything is open on Sundays. Uh, all sorts of, it's it's the day to shop. <laughs> yeah. What else would you do on Sunday but to shop? And you, you wouldn't want to ruin the whole day by church or things like that. You, know? you want to, uh, or, or else uh, these tremendous sporting events too. And although the church never condemned that per se, uh, you have some catechisms and uh, theologians saying major sporting events on Sundays is a uh, violation. Because the main event of Sunday is to keep your mind on the things of God. It, it's not, and he says that in here, in this encyclical, that it's, it's not just a day for fun and games. I'm paraphrasing him, but it should be... Uh, a day of primarily uh, given over to uh, contemplating the things of God. That brings us to number 42. Which is the rest and suitability for gender and age. Yes, he says if we turn not to things external, uh, external and material, the first thing of all to secure is to save unfortunate working people from the cruelty of men of greed who use human beings as mere instruments for money-making. That, that's a... Again, he's blasting the very typical 19th century attitude that uh, people are there just to run my factory and I can uh, take them or get rid of them as, as need be and I can pay them the lowest possible wage. If there's you know, more people than there are jobs, I can reduce the wage that I offer them. I can get rid of them uh, as I will, uh, you know, where it's, Basically, uh, like a labor camp or something, you know, it, 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 it's just a completely inhuman way of looking at it. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, this is a big change from the agrarian society of Europe for so many centuries, where even the serf owned his own land. And although he had to pay a, a rent to his landlord, he nevertheless owned his own owned his own land. And the king himself could not take it away. So he had a, 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 a place in which to support himself. I mean, he's, he was never going to be rich by that acre of land that he had. But he nevertheless had something. When, when they uh, abandoned the, the, the fields and went into the factories, uh, uh, life was all different. They owned nothing. They had no way of knowing if next week or next year they would have a job. So he's blasting away at that. This is a a time of extreme riches. Uh, The the one-way fare, maybe I mentioned this in the last one, but the one-way fare on the Titanic in in its best suite on the main deck was the equivalent today of $50,000. I don't know if you know that. Yes, <laughs> yes, one way. <laughs> yes. okay. And uh, so, I mean, there were, yes, and, you know, there were American entrepreneurs over in Europe buying everything. There's a museum over here that was bought. Uh, it was a monastery or a few monasteries bought uh, by some uh, very rich uh, man in uh, American. And then it was reconstructed brick by brick over here, and as part of the now the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. When you go through the various collections in New York and other American museums, uh, you think, "I wonder what they paid for this." <laughs> yeah, I mean, so very, very. The the Hans Holbein Thomas More, for example, is in New York, uh, and you just wonder, well, you know, that's in the Frick collection. He was one of those people that was extremely rich and money was no object. I mean, you just can imagine what they paid for these things. And, and, you know, it's not to necessarily accuse him, but it was an age in which there was a, a, 
a very tiny and extremely rich upper class, and the lower classes were being treated terribly. He's addressing this in this encyclical. He says, uh, daily labor, therefore, should be so regulated as not to be protracted over longer hours than strength admits, and that was very typical of the time uh, to, uh, to force people to work a great deal. Uh, and longer than they should. And, and he says how many and how long the intervals of rest should be must depend on the nature of work, the circumstances of time and place, and on the health and strength of the workman. So even, for example, just to take a break, what we call uh, in this to use the bathroom, uh, that was something that was was not uh, worked into the day. You, you just had to uh, bear it. <laughs> and uh, so uh, then he, you know, it says the the worse the work, the more rest there should be. So miners, for example, should not be overworked because it's very, very difficult. He says, as a general principle, it may be laid down that a workman ought to have leisure and rest proportionate to the wear and tear of his strength, or waste of strength must be repaired by cessation from hard work. Again, common sense, but it, it, it gives common sense a lot of power when the Pope is saying it. <laughs> Which leads us on to, I'm going to take paragraph 43 through 45 all all in one big chunk, really. He's talking about wages, the characteristics of labor, and the conditions of, of sustainable wages. In particular, in 44, he says that labor is both personal and necessary, and consequently, wages should be sustainable should be sustaining to to a man uh, to for him and his family i'm just going to take yes. all of all of those paragraphs those three paragraphs in one big uh, chunk and what would you like to say about that my lord yes well he makes the distinction he says that there's a personal side of labor and then there is a necessary uh, side of labor if you were uh just rich beyond belief and you wanted to have a job just to amuse yourself and you did not need it to uh, keep yourself going, uh, then the labor is only personal. So you could say, pay me 10 cents an hour or, or you know, whatever uh, uh, you, you say in England. Uh, you know, pay me nothing or, or very little because then it's just personal. You have no need to use that money for your support. Whereas if you are... Uh, using it for your support, then the wage cannot be merely determined by a personal agreement. It has to be determined by what is reasonable to support a man, his wife, and his family. Now, that doesn't mean they have to, uh, you know, have three SUVs in the garage, uh, as in many cases they do here. It means... Yeah, according to the class of work that he's doing, he still has to be able to maintain a family, you know, if in relatively low economic status, but still maintain that. So uh, you can't say, well, you're just sweeping the floor. Sweeping the floor is the lowest thing that we do in, in this whole factory, so you'll get some pittance of a wage because you're not very important. I could get 25 other people to sweep that floor in a minute. He can't say that. Uh, because uh, that man, if he's sweeping the floor, and uh, is entitled to what uh, it would take to keep a family in reasonable comfort, if, as I said, in a low economic state, uh, in reasonable comfort. So he, he's, again, attacking this principle that labor is some sort of a like a, a pool of animals or something. <laughs> you know, when we need them, we get them, we pay them as little as we can, then we get rid of them. He's attacking that, and he's right to do so. The Pius XI will also say the same thing, that there has to be a consideration of, of that. Because when you consider, again, the serf, he had his acre of land, he could grow enough to, to uh, feed himself and his family. That was considered normal. Uh, human beings have a right to that, to, to be able to reasonably uh, feed their family and to uh, have a, a reasonable expectation of how they're going to do it in the future. That's another thing. 
just uh, there has to be a, a stability of employment. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, you know, people cannot be laid off or fired, as the case may be. But there has to be some consideration of stability because, again, they cannot be treated as if they were merely farm animals where one of them, you know, might drop dead and you put another one on. <laughs> no, it's a different world. The Industrial Revolution really created a different world. And Leo Thirteenth is responding to that in this. But then, you know, you have the opposite extreme. In New York City and in Seattle now, the minimum wage is, I think, $15.75. That means the person who is, as we say over here, flipping burgers in, in McDonald's can make $30,000 a year. So a teenager, say 17 years old, and and he's taking orders at the drive-through at McDonald's. I don't know if you have those in your country. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> you know he, he he has to make that money. Uh, otherwise, it's illegal. So he can actually make thirty thousand dollars a year. There's you know a, a single person can live at least comfortably on thirty thousand dollars a year. And, you know the seventeen-year-old who probably might be from a very, uh, well, maybe not very rich, but a well-to-do family, and, you know, he's just making extra money, is is making a sort of a ridiculous wage. And that will actually reduce the ability of, of employers to employ, because they can't make money if they're paying the low end too much. So, you know, again, if there's a balance, as in everything, there's a, a a balance, and there's a reasonable amount, and that has to be determined uh, even perhaps by the state because uh, there has to be some objective determination of that. And in paragraph 46 and 47, he goes on to talk about private ownership and saving. And the effect of that saving will be to allow people who, who, who do the saving to invest in thing, you know, things that will allow them to well, give them a modest income going forward. He said it would bridge the gap between the very wealthy and the poor. It would increase productivity and increase the love of country, actually, because he would be the the, the man would be invested in his own country and in his own uh, in, in his immediate society. And he adds a caveat just quickly at the end: provided that taxation does not rob the people of their savings. Leading on from that, he's going to go on to talk about things like uh, labor associations and mutuals and, and things of that nature. But I wonder if you'd like to pick anything out of paragraphs 46 and 47 in particular. Yes, uh, he does uh, say that there, there should be, of course, some saving. You shouldn't live up to every penny you make. But in our present, I don't know about your country, but there's no place to put your money now. <laughs> it's the same the world over. I mean, going to Las Vegas would be actually a better uh, place <laughs> to put your money than in the stock market. I mean, yep. it's all overpriced right now. It's going to crash uh, one of these days, uh, you know, as everybody knows it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you could see your money disappear overnight. It's again, Leo is talking in a time uh, in which there was more economic stability than now. And, and uh, you could make some income off of some sort of investment of your money. But uh, <laughs> good luck, <laughs> whether no matter what you turn to. I mean, they, if you saw recently that the United States is still keeping its uh, interest rate at zero, the Federal Reserve, yep. that, that means the banks pay virtually nothing on the money that you put in there. So, no, uh, but yeah, you know, there's, there's other sources uh, of, of uh, you know, there's other investments that you can make, but they're, they're high risk. You know, even real estate is high risk today, and so this is, you know, of course the principle is true, but the application of the principle, at least in our time, would be very, very difficult. So the well, the, the, no, the temptation today is is to spend your money before inflation eats it up. See, if it yeah. sits in the bank now, getting nothing, helping the bank and getting nothing, uh, the temptation is, I might as well spend it on something before inflation eats it up. Now, they tell us our inflation is very low. You know, that's what they tell us. But when we go into the supermarket, we have other feelings about it. Uh, also, <laughs> they do not, I don't know about England, but in this country, they do not include food in the inflation calculation. 
No, we don't include that either. So, I don't know. <laughs> because that, that's not something that people buy every day, is it, my lord? <laughs> no, no, no one, no. But, uh, I mean, there's no greater attestation of inflation in this country than the supermarket. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you put your hand on something, you know, it just burns with, <laughs> with shock <laughs> how expensive it is. So, uh, and I, it's probably worse in the UK. I, I think I went into a supermarket once in the UK, but I didn't pay too much attention to the prices. But uh, I would imagine it's worse. It's not great. Now, a, a secular economic commentator who I watch occasionally, uh, who I won't, I won't name, but he's <laughs> he's coined the phrase, it's a casino gulag economy out there. <laughs> 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 and I think he's absolutely spot on. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's true. So, uh, again, Leo is talking common sense, but it, it, it's hard to, to apply the principle in these times. Uh, he says, uh, we have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved, save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable. So he, constantly he hits on that. Uh, and in other encyclicals, private property. He says, the law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. That's a very important principle, uh, that the just as the serf owned his land, so as much as possible, the workers should be given, for example, stock. They should be given profit sharing. See, where they are not merely getting a salary, but they are also sharing in the profits of what they do. Just as if you really work the, the land well this year and you put down a lot of manure and, and you know you really really keep your garden in good shape, your yield is going to be better. And so also if we, we are good workers and we we work real real diligently, the yield for the for the company is going to be better. We should benefit from that. That is known as profit sharing. That's definitely within the idea of Leo the Thirteenth. But also uh that they should have stock in their own company so that they are in that sense partial owners of it. And the natural inclination is to say, well, we better uh make sure that the company survives and that it thrives. Anytime you own something, you, you want to see it to uh, see it continue and to be in good condition. In paragraphs 48 to 51, he, he's talking about working men's unions, uh, what we would call now, I think, mutuals, associations, guilds, ideally, and I believe what we would call nowadays just charities, uh, organizations engaged in purely charitable, not-for-profit work. He's, he talks about the benefit of mutual support and the obligation of the state to not interfere as forming a society is natural to man, so men naturally come together into these into these societies, whether whether they're altruistic or professional or for whatever reason. He talks about that. That's all the way through forty eight to fifty one, and in fifty two he talks about where the state may suppress this kind of organisation. Could you just talk briefly about that? Yes, I think Leo here is talking about the Catholic workers' societies that uh, started up in Germany uh, in the uh, 1850s and all, uh, and they were very good. They they did all the things he says here. They, they helped the workers. They, they would uh, get involved in charity. Uh, they, they would... Uh, they were not a, a threat to the employer. To the contrary, they would make sure that the uh, workers did their jobs and that they uh, they had good discipline and so forth. Uh, that is essentially what the guilds did before the French Revolution, uh, when they pretty much disappeared. Uh, and they also had a uh, a Catholic uh, nature. Uh, they they uh, promoted religion. Uh, it's all essentially the guilds, and that's what he's talking about. I, I don't think he's talking about labor unions the way they exist today. No. Uh, you know, which are godless, greedy things that uh, really have ruined the economy of a great many nations, making it impossible 
for people to operate in in these industrialized nations because they are so greedy uh, and they're filled with socialism, you know, and and leftism and uh, the whole movement, the labor, the labor union movement was was something from the left, and and uh, always was, uh, you know, bearing the red flag and everything. It, it uh, the he's certainly not talking about that. You know, on paper they are the same thing in the sense that it is a an organization of workers for the protection of the workers. But what Leo is talking about is not what we think of uh, uh, when we think of a labor union. <laughs> <laughs> uh he would just uh I mean, that's something that should be suppressed by the state uh he uh uh not to say you know it, there, there is a, a certain good that a labor union does accomplish in principle and that is that it protects workers from being exploited by a, a greedy uh, and insensitive employer but they have become something that is that is socialistic and uh, which favors uh, class struggle and which detests the employer and sees the employer as an enemy, uh, that's what they have become. And and therefore, you know, we should not think that Leo XIII is, is advocating anything like that. Uh, he also says in these paragraphs that, you know, it, it, joining these things should be free. If you don't want to join it, that's fine, too. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, today we have what we call union shops where you have to join the union or, uh, effectively you do, because if you don't join the union, you will get beaten up. Uh, and, uh, that's, uh, or, you know, you will in some way be, uh, considered bad and, and you will be ostracized if you don't join the union. So many people are obliged to join labor unions, uh, at least in this country, because they, uh, they're afraid. There's pressure, so much pressure put on them to be part of the union. So, you know, it should be a free society. There should be no coercion to, to join these societies. That's what he's saying in these paragraphs. He says in number 54, he says they force working men either to join them or to starve. He says, under these circumstances, Christian working men must do one of two things, either join associations in which their religion will be exposed to peril. I would say that about labor unions in many cases, or form associations among themselves and unite their forces so as to shake off courageously the yoke of so unrighteous and intolerable an oppression. But again, you know, socialism was triumphant after World War One, and the labor union has become ensconced. They're they're on the wane though in this country. I don't know if they are in England, but the labor unions are are not as powerful as they once were, because I think employers have figured out that if you treat employees well and you get a good reputation for that, they're not so interested in the labor union. There are some big companies that don't have unions. I, I think that Delta Airlines does not have a union. No, the, com- the company the- I work for doesn't have a union, and a lot of the companies. One, the the Times actually publishes something every year called the Times Top 100 Employers, and companies want to be on that list. And most of the companies on that list are not unionized. Yes. And the workers are more productive. They don't have union dues. Strikes are virtually non-existent. For example, I mean, with the with labor unions in decline in this country. There are virtually you know, strikes. I can't remember the last time an airline had a strike, for example. I can't even it's years. Uh, there, we have not seen strikes in this country for a long, long time. Any strike at all. It's just non-existent. The car companies, they, they just don't do it anymore. Whereas Europe still has some. I, I see Lufthansa has a strike. Of course, France. France has strikes, I mean, just in the same way that they would drink a, a glass of wine. <laughs> Part of the culture in France is to have a strike. And well, there's uh, a wildcat strike, too. You're leaning against an open door with me on that one. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but I don't know, so many times in France I would go for a flight and, well, it's on, they're on strike today. You know? And, uh, uh, and uh, it, it, it happens, they don't even tell you. Yes. Yep. Ah. Cross cross channel ferries, they regularly go on strike in Calais and Dieppe. So cross cross channel you can't function. 
then they'll, the air, airports will go on strike, so you can't fly to France either. It, it happens a lot. Just air traffic controllers go on strike. You know, I yep. think France would probably have the strongest economy in Europe were it not for those that those strikes. Uh, they they very probably they would, but they are beset with strikes. So, but in any Quite case, possible. yes. So, in paragraph fifty-five. Pope Leo XIII talks about, uh, again, he's going on about these ideas of cooperatives and mutuals. And he also talks about something that um, is very in vogue nowadays with things like there's websites out there for crowdfunding. And they obviously you can crowdfund now with the Internet, you can crowdfund globally. And you have sites like uh, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, StartJoin. Um, and all of these, all of these sites, people can go on, put ideas up, and people can contribute money, and uh, to get these projects going. And these are a lot of, not all of them, but some of these sites now are equity crowdfunding sites where you contribute some money, and you effectively buy some equity in the project. And therefore, if it does well in the future, you will get a, you know, you'll get a return on on your investment. And this is touted in, this is touted in certain circles on the internet as being the new, you know, a new amazing big thing, you know, equity crowdfunding. Now technology has made this this possible for us. In actual fact, I was reading through this encyclical and I was thinking about it. It came to my mind straight away and I just thought the Catholic Church was writing about this back at the end of the 19th century. You know, why is this new to people? This is exactly the sort of thing that the Pope is recommending. Yes, but don't forget, when he was writing this, the socialism... Uh, People were drunk with socialism, and and so I don't think uh, his recommendations were taken too seriously. But it, it's all it all makes reasonable sense. Of course, it's all true. You know? But uh, you know, human beings have not been known since original sin to to really embrace uh, reason and common sense. <laughs> I suppose that's true. <laughs> I think that's 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 probably a good point to just very uh, break very briefly and say that um, we would like to remind you that you are listening to Popes Against the Modern Errors. This is Rerum Novarum Part Two on the Restoration Radio Network. I am your host Matthew Gaskin, and I am joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been discussing Leo XIII's great encyclical Rerum Novarum on the use of capital and labour. We want to remind you that this Popes Against the Modern Era show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. And back to the common sense of Pope Leo XIII. We're on now in paragraph 56, unless you have anything further to, to add to paragraph 55, my lord. No, really, the rest of the whole encyclical is concerning these these uh, associations that he's that he's promoting and how they should be founded in religion and and again, it's a very very good doctrine. I think though that he's, his suggestions are falling on deaf ears and it is something that is just not possible in our world today. But his suggestions are very very good, and you know he calls for committees to help. Solve problems, and you know, instead of uh, getting the state involved or uh, having a, a struggle between labor and capital, and uh, he, he's um, all of it is, is wonderful. Uh, just uh, I don't know if it ever existed. <laughs> it's, you yeah. know, this this beautiful world that he's that he's uh, setting out for us here. I just don't know if it ever existed. But the Catholic Church, you know, has always promoted uh, this uh, in this country. And I don't know, again, in Europe, this country probably was a. This kind of Catholic, or very seldom Catholics were persecuted. Whereas, you know, in, in especially continental Europe, the Catholic Church really has nothing to say in a way to, especially to uh, entrepreneurs, rich entrepreneurs and all. I mean, they couldn't care less about what the Catholic Church said. Uh, so I don't think it ever took much root in in Europe. Uh, that I, I think socialism took root in Europe. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree with that. 
He's very actually very prescriptive, and you can see he's he's thought through some of the practicalities about how to start these associations, and it is very clear what he says, and it always comes back to the idea that whatever happens, it's God first, the religious rights of man first of all, and then after that, the associations. And it's a, I'd never read it before, and it, it's an encyclical that I've really enjoyed enjoyed reading, actually, and um, it sort of uh, clarifies a lot of things. There's a there can be quite a lot of confusion about. Yeah, you as you said earlier, the the unions do say they do have valid points, but their solutions are all wrong. Is there anything? He, he has, has a beautiful ending. He has a beautiful ending, which I'll read. He says, "For the happy results we all long for must be chiefly brought about by the plenteous outpouring of charity." of that true Christian charity, which is the fulfilling of the whole gospel law, which it, uh, is already always ready to sacrifice itself for others' sake, and is man's surest antidote, antidote against worldly pride and immoderate love of self, that charity whose office is described and whose godlike features are outlined by the Apostle St. Paul in these words, charity is patient, is kind, seeketh not her own, suffereth all things, endureth all things. That's a, a beautiful thing to say to the business world, that the, the, uh, everything should be guided by supernatural charity. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful world we'd live in if, if this encyclical were put in, even if half of it were put into practice. Well, let's say that, let's say that one day the likes of Donald Trump uh, take this to heart. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are uh, living in expectation of November 2016 to see what happens. It's quite a uh, an open field right now. So. I must admit, from my point of view, it's quite entertaining watching. It's you're watching a caricature American. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Everyone would agree he is entertainment, and and the whole thing. If you, if you look at some of those debates. I think most people are watching them for entertainment value, to uh, to see how he's going to talk to Carly from the arena or something like that. And uh, it is, it's, uh, it, 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 this country is is on fire with this coming election right now, and it's over a year out, but it's on fire with it. So we'll see what happens. Uh, a lot of different things, and what there's a certain that there's an anti-Washington feeling. If you are a uh, career politician, you're practically dead. <laughs> oh, that's no bad thing. Yeah, as another secular commentator calls it, it's the presidential reality show. And that is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, and, uh, well, we'd, we'd better close it off there. Um, as we mm-hmm. close out. As we close out this episode, we have covered the second part of Rerum Navarum, and I want to thank you, Your Lordship, for your time in being with us on this episode. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out? No, I think we've uh, gone through the whole encyclical and and uh, realized uh, that Leo the Thirteenth is is setting down very supernatural principles: charity above all, and also justice and. Ruled by, by uh, as I've always said, uh, just common sense in dealing with people uh, uh, in a in a proper way and not treating them like animals. Well, once again, my lord, I thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next month as we continue this series. May God bless you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. If you have any questions for his lordship or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at modernerrors at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us are strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. Lord,
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.